This week, the podcast celebrates Dylan Thomas Day, 14th May. Tonight, in Swansea, Michael Sheen will announce the winner of the 2020 Dylan Thomas Prize. And here in Hay this morning, we're celebrating Matthew Francis' extraordinary retelling of the ancient Welsh tales, the Mabinogi. These are the foundation tales of Welsh literature, as inspiring to contemporary writers as the Mahabharata or Homer. There's been a, a new translation in 2008 by Shawnee Davis in prose, and more recently, Seren Press have brought out a stunning collection of contemporary reimaginings by Tishani Doshi, Fleur David, Horatio Clare, Cannon Jones, Trezor Azapadi, Gwyneth Lewis, and Owen Shears. Matthew Francis is an English poet whose collections Muscovy and now The Wing have won him wide admiration in the English-speaking world. He moved to West Wales a while ago and is Professor of Creative Writing at Aberystwyth University. In these extracts, he explores the issues of translation, of reimagining, of refashioning these stories with Daniel Hahn, himself one of the world's great translators, and a gifted, perceptive and wholly inspiring interviewer. Before we talk, Matthew, about, uh, mm-hmm. about, as it were, what you have done to it, right. what, you have, what you have perpetrated upon this thing, <laughs> yeah. um, can you just say, in case there are people here who don't know the original, don't know it well, can right. you just briefly tell us uh, what, what that kind of foundational text is? Right, well, it's basically the, the, the book that is usually known as the Mabinogion is uh, 11 uh, Welsh uh, prose tales. Um, they were first written down in the mid-1300s, in two um, manuscript sources, and I tend to get the names right, right, wrong way around, but I'll, I'll try and remember. It's the White Book of Radech and the Red Book of Hergist, and um, that's the source of these, of these tales, but they are clearly much older than that, and some of them, some of them very old indeed, and they would have had oral, they would have transmitted orally. Um, they are very, as you said, very magical, very strange, um, extraordinary things, and they... Um, achieved sort of wide currency outside Wales in the mid-19th century when Lady Charlotte Guest translated them into English under the title of the Mabinogion. Um, this was, th- th- that title was a mistake. The Mabinogion is apparently not a, not a real Welsh word. Um, and, and the word that is used in the, in the manuscript themselves is um, Mabinogi. But Mabinogi, it's only the first four tales of those 11 that refer to themselves as the Mabinogi. They call themselves the four branches of the Mabinogi. And this book that I've done is a, um, is a, a, a very loose poetic translation of those four branches of the Mabinogi, the first four tales, which are linked in various ways. Um, some of the other tales, for example, have, have sort of Arthurian material in them, which is interesting, fascinating in itself. But um, these ones seem... seem not to have kind of spread their influence outside Wales until that Lady Charlotte Guest version. Um, they have this character of their own, this kind of unique quality, but they also, they're also linked in strange ways. The characters are connected to each other. Certain characters appear in several tales and, and so on. So they have a kind of unity. They seem to belong slightly apart from the other tales. Thank you. I'm going to ask uh, later on, I think, about the, about the things that link these four stories, but not least because, as I understand it, there are, in a way, you've, you've, you've brought them even closer together in your four versions than they were in the original. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, to stay with, um, with the originals for a moment, uh, and I ask this um, out of a position of ignorance, and I apologise to those of you who already know this already. Um, can you say something about, about the language in which, these, um, in which this text was written? Um, 
I know that you weren't translating from Welsh, and we'll come to no. that. I think that itself is very interesting. I, I'm a translator myself, and I'm always curious mm -hmm. to know how we define the boundaries of what it is you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, but how close to the Welsh that's spoken today is... is uh... <laughs> you're asking the wrong person, because I'm no expert in Welsh. I mean, I, I mean, though, I'm, I'm assuming some people, as <clears throat> many people here, have read, can read. Uh, <laughs> Medieval Welsh, yes. Or at all, I'm assuming, you know, at a book festival. Anyone, can anyone here read? First question. <laughs> really basic. You see, they're very impressive audiences today. <laughs> I'm kind of curious just to know, that I, I suppose, mm. how readily someone, you know, a Welsh speaker today could mm. actually get access to, to something which I is written. I have no idea. How close? Do we, does anyone know? Can anyone answer that question? Yes. Mm -hmm. About 50% right. accessible. It's a bit like when you read Old English, mm -hmm. the, the S is like the F, and in Welsh, you get a lot of, in ancient Welsh, you get a lot of Ks, which don't exist nowadays. Right, yeah. So there are certain letters that are different, but about 50% comprehensible. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's an interesting starting point then. Can you, can you say something, Matthew, about, um, about your first discovery of this, mm. the, the first time you read this in, I, in English? I first read it in 1999 when I first moved to Wales. Um, uh, I, I'm English and, and um, I've, I got a job in Wales um, at, at what was then the University of Glamorgan, now the University of South Wales, in 1999. So here, here, here was I, an Englishman in Wales, and I hadn't really visited Wales very much, a couple of holidays as a child, and I thought I really should learn something about this country I'm coming to, and um, one of the first things I did was read the Mabinogion. Um, not with any idea of eventually turning it into a poem, but um, just out, out of interest. And, uh, and, and I read um, the Geoffrey Gantz translation of the Mabinogion and was fascinated by it, at the same time baffled by it. It's, it's, it is, as you, as you say, it's like nothing else, really. Mm. It, it, is, it is strange in the way it's constructed. Um, characters appear and disappear in it, um, lots and lots of magic, um, lots of kind of strange logic. Um, and uh, I, so I was, I was partly baffled, partly fascinated. And I put it down for a long time. I, after I'd finished it, I, I didn't come back to it for um, many years until uh, really that I, I embarked on this project. And that was actually at the suggestion of my publisher um, because I went to him one day in early 2014 and said, I'm stuck, I don't know what to write next. And he said, have you thought of doing a version of Avinogion? And, um, and he no, said, no, no, <laughs> that's a ridiculous idea. Why, why would anyone do such a thing? And, and, no, I hadn't thought of doing that. But, but it's actually, Faber have done a lot of these um, versions of classic texts recently. For example, Daljit Nagra has done the, uh, Rabbi, uh, the Ramayana, mm -hmm. and um, uh, Patience Agbabi has done the, the Canterbury Tales and yeah. so on. So the, the, it's the kind of thing that Faber are pursuing at the moment, uh, reimaginings of classic texts. Mm -hmm. and, and so he suggested, how about me and the Mabinogion? So at that point, I reread it in the Shauna Davis translation, and, and I began to see how it could work. And it, and it, it began to fascinate me, as a, as a, particularly as a poetic project, because the original tales are prose. And somehow it seemed to me they work better in poetry than in prose. They would work better in modern poetry mm -hmm. than, in, than in prose, um, because they are metaphorical, they're they are magical, they're, they're full of fant fantastic things, which, which you don't expect from, say, a novel. And yet in, it, we do expect them from a poem. So I could see how it would work. I wanted to just, I'm going to ask you to read a little bit. I, I've asked Matthew just to read a few little bits as we go through, because mm -hmm. you really ought to hear what this sounds like. It's an extraordinary piece of, of poetry. Um, but I want just to stick with that thing you said a moment ago about what Faber were doing, and, mm -hmm. and kind of look at the, the motivation for, whether it's for you or for a publishing house, mm. to take something that, that has you know, a kind of a, a life of its own, an integrity yep. of its own, um, 
a, reputa yeah. a certain kind of reputation and say this, this needs something different, yes. maybe. It's been translated many times since Charlotte guessed 170-something years ago. Absolutely. Yes, it's not... I mean, I don't think any of these pro projects are translations. What they are is, no. is reimaginings. And they are, and, and in a way, poets have always done this, haven't they? I mean, Shakespeare reimagines um, Plutarch and, and, and lots of other sources, for example. Um, you know, mo most poets, it was, kind of, it was understood a few hundred years ago that if you were a poet, your main job was reimagining the classics, was reimagining Homer and Virgil. That's what poets did. They retold these classic stories. And I think that retelling them doesn't take away from them. It, it, it adds a new dimension. It, it, shows, it shows other uses and purposes for, for these classic texts. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a valuable thing for poets to do. Um, and, and, uh, and I think it, it's also it's, 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 uh, helping poets to, to break out of this, this constant chronicling of their own lives, which I think can be a very depressing and <laughs> boring thing when poets do nothing but write about themselves and their feelings and their, uh, and, and their, and their personal relationships and so on. I've never actually wanted to do that, actually. Well, it can be boring for the, for the poet as much as for it can be, those yes. of us who have to read the stuff. <laughs> yes, I, do, I, do, I just don't feel that, you know, that my life is that interesting, that I could have devoted six books of poems to, to just my life and the things that happened to me. So I'd, I'd much rather tell stories, you know, mm. as poets have always done. Well, this is... Uh, a supreme example of telling stories and, and quite some stories through, through poetry. Mm. Will you, give, will you read, read us a little bit before we, before we go on? Yes, certainly. This What's is from the, the first branch. And um, some of the action in, um, uh, in the Mabinogi takes place on a hill um, in Pembrokeshire called uh, Gorseth Arberth. And I apologise for my Welsh pronunciation, which is not great. But... Um, Nobody, I think nobody quite knows where Gorseth Arbeth is. There are theories as to where it might be, but there's, there's supposed to be this hill in Pembrokeshire, and, this, and the story goes that if um, somebody climbs to the top of the hill and waits there long enough, something extraordinary will happen. They'll see something strange pass by below, and, uh, and, and they'll, they'll see marvels. So this is one of those things that happens in, um, uh, on Gorseth Arbeth, and the character, this is the, the, the Welsh name I find hardest to pronounce, Pwyll. Um, something like that, anyway. He is a king, or a prince, and he, uh, of, of this area, of, da of David, and um, he is sitting on Gorseth Arbeth with, um, uh, with his court, his, his, his retainers, his, his followers, and waiting for something to happen. And what happens is a woman passes by on a horse, and uh, she has this strange ability that, although she appears to be riding quite slowly, no one can catch her. So he becomes fascinated by this and tries to, tries to catch her. So I'll read this passage. It's little more than a bump in the land, a footnote in the catalogue of hills, crags and ridges, felt as an ache in the thighs, the hearts flip and gulp by those heavy with mutton and wine. Then a subtle sense of arrival, a breeze scurrying up to attend to you, the green swell of crown, the fields gathering below. They say, if you sit on the summit, you'll see a sight more chilling than the greys of rain, or something more brilliant than lightnings, snazzy gold. From up here, everything is cloud, the grass, forest, corn, even the rocks and nuances of weather. The roads are white lines through the billows. He watches with his men as a figure grows there, a horse with a lick of sunlight on its back, a horse with a knight in gilt armor, a horse with a splash of silk horsewoman riding, not so much moving as sharpening, Will she ever be real? The boy he sends down finds the road silent 
her back already dwindling. She is woman and horse. She rides slower than daydreams. She is what you've forgotten, where the time went. Single-minded as the sun, she rides always one way, and the air's warmed by her passing. The man he sends after her the second day tries slowing down. She rides slower still, and the road grows between them. He gallops again. Always she dawdles away from him till she's as small as a gnat and his horse gasping. She slips into yesterday without being now. On the third day, he rides himself on his sleekest horse till it's yeasty with sweat. She is a brushstroke on the stillness of the facing page, illuminated in gold on a green background. And there is always a white space between them. At last, he calls out to her to stop. There's a tearing sound, the sense of a veil lifting, and they are side by side, flank to flank. He should have asked her sooner. Better for the horse. They talk in time to the hoofs, saddle courtesies. Later, he will ask himself how she knew who he was and why she chose him out of all the princes who hunt under these lumbering clouds. Now, he is watching her smile as it comes and goes, a slip of candlelight seen under a door, listening to the cluck of laughter that nestles deep in her throat, hearing himself talk in the silences she leaves for him. Later, they will feast and dance and climb the long stairs. Later, he'll wonder. Today, there's wonder enough. That's um, the, uh, the time when Puch meets Rhiannon, and, uh, and they marry, and, um, uh, and they have a baby, which then the story carries on about, about the child that um, is born, that, that marriage. But she's a kind of magical person. She's sort of half goddess, really. Mm. Thank you very much. I'm going to ask you to read more later, because it's, it's great hearing that. One of the reasons it's so nice to hear this is because, as we suggested earlier, what you're doing is not producing a translation uh, per se, um, mm. you're producing poetry that functions as poetry, poetry that has mm -hmm. the effects that poetry has. Exactly. Um, but I wonder if you could say a little bit about that, because we, you worked from an English, you worked from an, an existing mm -hmm. English translation. Yes. Can you say something about, the, about, I suppose, the transition from an English which you, you acquired, as it were, from someone else to, to yours? It's not a translation in the sense that you go line by line, you no, figure out what not. the Welsh is doing. Absolutely but can you talk not. about that, about the that kind of movement from one thing mm. to another? Well, I think one of the main things is that, um, that structurally there are problems with the text and mm. in, term, in terms of making it work as a, as a, as a narrative poem. And, um, and I, I, found, I found just for start difficult, or impossible really, to cram in all the action of the Mabinogi into um, uh, a book of this length. Mm. So some, some of it had to go for that reason. Some, some passages are wonderful, but they don't seem to connect to anything else. Um, I mean, in the second branch, there's, a, there's a, an, a, an extraordinary story, for example, about some people who get trapped in a red-hot room. It's, a, it's an amazing story, but it doesn't actually fit into any of the rest of the, the rest of the narrative. I wanted a more continuous flow of the story, so I, I had to remove passages like that from it. Um, uh, and, and that in itself creates problems, because, for example, I moved, removed one passage um, and, and, and then realized that that was actually affecting the motivation of something that happens elsewhere in the story. This is the, the story in, in the original is called The Badger in the Bag. I, took, mm. I cut that passage out for various reasons. Um, and 
then I realized that the badger in the bag story actually motivates the villain of the, the third branch of the Mabinogi. He, he, he commits his, his magical crimes because of what happened in that incident. So you then so need to create a new motivation. I had to create a new motive for him, and I suddenly realized I was writing it that the motive was staring me in the face. It was one, one of those wonderful moments that actually the story I had, had already was enough motive for somebody to, to, mm. to want revenge. So um, that, that, was a, that was a great little moment. So the things on that scale... Um, structural things that, uh, that were quite important. But those things, sorry to interrupt you, but those things, I mean, when, when you're deciding, I mean, presumably you were constantly deciding how far you can go because you also could throw this away and write your own thing, which is entirely unconnected at the, mm-hmm. the other extreme. Yes. W- was the, were those decisions about, you know, I can take away this little, uh, this little sort of incidental story, but I'm not going to remove huge chunks. I'm going to change this, but I'm not going to entirely mm. reinvent characters. When you're deciding how far exactly you can go, is it just about... What it needs, to, what I need to do to make it work. I mean, is that always the touchstone? Um, I think. Well, I mean, I think there is. There is a, 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 you, when you when you're selecting incidents for the for the for the poem, um, you you are thinking in terms of what will work well in poetry, mm-hmm. and you're thinking also in terms of what you need for the logic of the story. So some some things couldn't go because the logic of the story demanded them. For example, I was. Uh, I was, did, really didn't want to do the scene. There's a scene in the second branch, which you may know about, called The, the, the Maiming of the Horses, where uh, a character called Nushin basically goes, goes berserk in a stable and, and, and uh, attacks all these horses and, and, and maims them. And it's a, it's, a, it's a very sort of awful moment in, 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 the, in the book, but it couldn't, it couldn't not be there. It was important because it provided key motivation for the story. It also was a sort of key factor in, in, in the character of Nushin, who is a the most extraordinary portrait, I think, in the original of, of, a, of a psychopathic um, villain uh, and, and just an in, in, intriguing um, character. Uh, and he, he had to be, that had to be shown. So that kind of thing has to, has to be there. I think, um, as I said, the, the magical things are a plus for the story. I, li- I, like, I like to have those in because they're sort of, um, they provide a, a, a metaphor for one thing. They, 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 they show people's power. And For example, um, in, in the second branch, um, one of the main characters is Bran the Blessed, who is a giant, and and the fact that he's a giant plays a big part in the plot. But it's also it's it's, it's symbolic. It shows he's a giant because he's a powerful man. He's, mm. he's a giant because he's larger than life, as we say now. You know, so so that kind of thing is important. It's interesting though that, that at, while you have characters like that, there is also, in a funny way, there is some amazing characterization. There are some really really strongly mm. drawn characters, mm. not exactly realist characters, but there are. There's some really strong and interesting women. There are characters who yes, have are. really yes. interesting moral issues, yes. um, and it feels it feels. Uh, I think sophisticated seems like a really patronising word, but it mm. does feel immensely sophisticated. Mm. One of the one of the main things I love about the, the Mabinogi is 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 its psychological acuteness. For yeah. example, I mean the first story in it. Is, is about this character whose name I'm going to stop trying to pronounce, I have to say, but the, the hero of the first branch of the Mabinogi um, is, is riding, he's a, he's a prince and he's ride, riding hunting one day and uh, his, his, his um, hounds are pursuing a deer and he hears somebody else's hounds pursuing a deer and the other hounds get to the deer first and, uh, and kill this deer. And he then rides in the clearing, the de- deer is de- lying dead and he shoes away these other hounds and puts his own hounds on the deer to, uh, to, to, to feast on the carcass. And that is a terrible offence against the other hunter who happens to outrank him. He's a, he's a king, not a prince. And so when the other hunter co- comes in, he's, he's outraged at this, this, this breach of etiquette. So, so far, so kind of strange and medieval, right? But what happens then is, I think, extraordinarily acute. And, and that is that 
Um, the, the other man says, you have got to become me. We are going to swap personalities. You are going to be, to be this me. This is your and, punishment. This is your punishment. You're going to yeah. be me and live in my court for a year and, and have my life. Now, what kind of punishment is and, that? And indeed my wife. And, and indeed my wife, yes. Uh, what kind of punishment is that? It sounds mm. like a reward, doesn't it? Mm. But actually, I think what's going on there is... It's, it's, a, it's an extraordinary symbol for shame because this person has committed something wrong. He's, he's committed a terrible breach of etiquette of, of good manners and he is ashamed. So he no longer feels he's himself. He's lost his, kind of, his own personality. And in order to get it back, he has to prove that he has to, he has to put himself in somebody else's shoes and say, imagine you, know, imagine you are me. Be this other person and, 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 and do what's right for them. And that's what, how we have to learn to live with each other. I think that's what the story is telling us. And as I say, it's, it's, a, it's extreme, extremely acute. And you couldn't, in a way, do it without that magic. The magic actually provides that image of, of what it's like to commit a wrong to somebody else and, and to have to, to, to make up for it. I want to ask you about, uh, about form in a moment. Would you read a little more before we do mm, that? Sure. A little brief. I'll read you the opening of the second branch, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I was telling you about the giant, Bran the Blessed. So, so the <laughs> second branch begins with the portrait of a giant. He is the capital at the start of the sentence. A tree, a crow's nest, a furlong of a man. You cannot think of him all at once. Picture his scrubland of beard, his battlement teeth. Or think of the vertigo of standing there gazing from the parapet of self he can never climb down from, the wind in his ears that his friends must shout to compete with. A life lived in the weather. No house will hold him. He is closer to the birds than his family. He feels a kinship with high places. Here on the cliffs, he can watch the sea, think its blue and grey thoughts. Sometimes crazed causeways appear in it, or creeping patches of dark trouble the surface. Today, there's a grainy cloud in the distance that might be a swirl of mosquitoes picking the sun to pieces with their bits of wings, but whiter, more bosomy than that. A flotilla of seagulls, saltwater swans, more complicated than that. It's something human. What it actually is is, is, is a, a, a fleet of, uh, that has set sail from Ireland, uh, and it's, a, it's a, on a diplomatic mission to find... Um, uh, to, 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 the, the King of Ireland wants to marry Bran's sister, Branwen. And um, I'll just read on, on a little bit more about that, that mission. The wind fluttering through a volume of blank pages, 13 ships approaching from the smudgy west, where there is known to be an island dangerously like this one, but darker, vaguer. Their jauntiness dis disturbs him, those puffs of cloth and the banners squiggling above them, unreadable signatures in red, green and gold. They've come as close as they can now, and are busy with the task he can't see or hear, till the smooth blue breaks into a rash of black boats. These are the manners of kings, to raise a shield, point up on the mainmast as a sign you come in peace, to stay on the ship till asked ashore, to send out messengers to the sandy threshold, where they must shout politely up the cliff face, to the one who seems carved out of it, to this effect, all the world acknowledges the of his grace, her grace, his grace's sister, who no woman, the whiteness of her gentle, to which of our two peoples strengthened these unworthy gifts 
you probably have no idea what was going on there. What was, what was happening is they're shouting a message up the cliff face, and the wind is blowing most of the words away, so you just get mm -hmm. the sort of, a, a fragments of, of diplomatic message going on. Hmm. Thank you. I wanted, I wanted to ask you to say something about um, the form in which you've chosen to mm -hmm. write this. And I wonder whether we might do that by asking you to describe what, what the pages looked like. Okay. Well, because I think, that's, I think there's something about... I mean, first of all, I should say it's a beautifully designed thing that was beforehand. It's a really lovely, put, beautifully put-together mm. object. I'm very pleased with the way Faber have done it. I think it's but, there's, but there's a lot of care taken <clears throat> in the spacing, the line mm. lengths, all those kind of things, which I presume are partly to do with the way you wanted yes, to, yeah. to tell the stories. Yes. I don't some of you might be able to see it if I hold it up like that. But, um, that's, that's roughly what the pages look, look like. And um, the, um, there are basically four sections to a page. And uh, each of those sections, I think of it as a sonnet. It's, it's, they're 14 line sections. Mm. And each of them are subdivided into four stanzas. So it's actually a stanza of five, a stanza of four, a stanza of three, a stanza of two. And they have a syllabic pattern. Anyone who knows my poetry knows that I, I, I write a lot of poems in syllabics, so, which is you count the syllables uh, in each line. And I, like, I particularly like tapering shapes. So the shapes taper um, in, in this. They go 13 syllables, 11 syllables, 9, 7, 5, and then the next one goes 11, 7, 5, uh, sorry, uh, 11, 9, 7, 5, and so on. Um, so the, the stanzas are tapering and the lines are tapering. So you get this, this kind of look on the page, which I like, that kind of wave form, I always think of it as. Um, that's one thing about, about it. Then there's the, white, the extra white space between the sections, between the four sonnets on the page. Furthermore, within the, each branch of the, of the, of the Mabinogi, they're broken into subsections, and I mark those, but there's a, what, what they call a drop capital, which is a large capital letter. You see them in old-fashioned books at the beginning of chapters often. And I, I've, I like these things. I, I think they look very nice on the page, this big letter. But one thing I was trying to do with this strange and rather elaborate shape I was working in was um, to make it look something like a medieval manuscript. Mm. So I, I thought of the, the, big, the big capital letter as being like, a, like a, an illuminated capital in a medieval manuscript. I thought of the the white space as being like the gaps you might get in a medieval manuscript if some of it was missing or some of it had been gradually sort of worn away over the years. And so I wanted the whole thing to feel not like a, a, a dense page of prose, as you get in a novel, but like a, a, a sort of slightly tattered page with things missing. I mean, that, that piece, piece I just read was a good example of things missing, wasn't it? Mm. There, were, there were things that, did, that, that were left out because the, you couldn't hear the, what the people were shouting. Um, but I think, in a way, all poetry does that. It leaves things out. Uh, it's not continuous like prose. And so the, blanks, the, the, the white space, the blank, the blank bits on the page were very important to me in the, in the design of the whole thing. You said something at the beginning of that answer which, which um, kind of made my ears prick up a bit as a, I, I'm a, a translator myself. Mm -hmm. um, and you said you were describing, um, I think you were talking about the, the, the syllabic. And you said mm -hmm. anyone who knows my poetry will know that I like mm -hmm. such and such. That, in some ways, is the thing that makes this not a translation, mm -hmm. um, because there's a there's a, a very strong driving thing, which is mm. how you write poetry. That's true. Which yeah. is not just mm. attempting to disguise yourself mm. behind something else. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so one of one of uh, the, I suppose the characteristics of my poetry is it does have this strong narrative element, and mm. and I think this is partly because I'm a, a sort of thwarted novelist. I've written a couple of novels. Um, I'd like to write more. Um, but it takes a very long time to write a novel, doesn't it? And, and uh, I, in, in some ways, I find 
poetry easier to do. Um, uh, that it's um, uh, poets. Poets are people who like working at the, de at the level of detail and, and thinking for ages and ages over a single word. You can't really write a novel like that. Um, so I'm somehow torn between the two, between between writing um, narrative, writing narrative, but also wanting to write write in a compressed way that concentrates on the power of in, of individual words and. That's why I've tended to write narrative poems, mm. and, and so that's one thing. I've also done a lot of ad adapting texts. Um, this is not the first adapted text I've done. I've done ones that are not as long as this, and I did a book called, called Mandeville, which is adapted from another medieval book um, uh, of me medieval prose tales, and, and so that, that's different from this, but it, it had many similarities as well. Um, so I, I'd like to adapt texts. I think this is partly because I struggle with plots, actually. Mm. Uh, it's one of, the, one of the other things that makes me not, not such a very good novelist is I can't do plots terribly well, so um, I like to have... It makes you quite a good material. contemporary novelist. There are lots of contemporary novelists who don't do one. <laughs> yeah. I'm as interested in plots yeah. as some of us might like. But they're probably more interested in themselves than I'm interested in myself. It's also possibly true. Yeah. I mean, I can, sort of behind that question, in a way, was as someone who can't read uh, the, the Welsh, one of the things that I'm always curious about, whether it's a translation mm -hmm. or, a, or a kind of retelling, mm -hmm. is what this thing is that I'm getting in relation to the thing that I haven't got access mm. to. Um, and it seems to me that there are things, that, things here that are obviously... Uh, that are revealing the original, that are celebrating, that are using what's thrilling and original about, about the original. Mm -hmm. about the original. Yes, yes. And then there are things here which are telling me about yep. what it's like to read a Matthew Francis poem. Yeah, that, that's true. And, and actually, one of the challenges of it is, is that, as I mentioned earlier on, this, this was not a project I thought up for myself. Mm. This was a project that, that, was, that was offered to me. And uh, I haven't done that on that scale before. I haven't had someone else tell me, do this at book length. And, um, and so the first thing you think is, well, if you take on a job like that, it's not you. It's, it's just you doing a job of work. You're becoming a hack writer. As I was writing, I found that that didn't happen. I found actually I'd identified with it. I felt that, that I was finding things in the text that that spoke to me directly. As I spoke just now about the, the opening of the first branch and how that, you know, that portrait of shame um, spoke to me directly. Uh, and so it becomes something that is, that is partly external to you. It's, it's partly, you know, it's, it, it has a source in another text. Um, it was not the, a project that I designed for myself. And yet it also, a lot of it comes out of you. A lot of it comes out of, out of oneself. And, and, uh, and, and that was a great surprise and, and, um, and, a, and, a, and a wonderful one. And, and actually, if that hadn't happened, I probably wouldn't have gone through with it. If I'd, if I'd found it, it, I wasn't taking it to, 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 my, to my heart and actually, actually believing in it, then mm. I, would, I would probably have had to stop writing it. Thank you for listening. This podcast is brought to you by the Hay Festival and sponsored by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers. You can hear 7,000 or more recordings on video and audio on the Hay Player if you go to our website. And next week, please join us for Hay Festival Digital, which will be beaming around the world from the 18th to the 31st of May.